Welcome to Wobblies and Wizards. I am your host, Logar the Barbarian. And my guest today with me is Marsha B., who has the blog Traverse Fantasy, which is chiquitafajita.blogspot.com. Welcome. Hi, thank you. It's good to have you. We've been reading your blog off and on here. Now, I'm not up to date on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Too much posting. So I figured the way I'd start this conversation is just asking you how, when you got into D&D, how you got into the, playing these games and starting the blog? Right. So I actually started playing D&D like my senior year of high school in 2017. And that was like the rise of 5E. It's like a big like cultural thing. And so I got really into it via The Adventure Zone, which is like this McElroy podcast where yes. I think um, for a while it was like the only way you could like get an idea of like how 5E worked before it was like officially published, before there were like big podcast, a critical role and so on. And so I got really into it that way. And I started running my own games like in 2018. And that's when I got really into DIY scene because I like a lot of these like um, OSR blogs and I was kind of overwhelmed by like how for characters and 5e is like a lot of like work after you to like prepare them to make them. And for free, it's even worse because you have to like at the balance things or plan stories and like all that kind of stuff. And so seeing a different play style on like DIY OSR blogs, like a big aha moment for me, because I was like, oh, so that's all kind of like unnecessary. I can like do less prep. I can do things that are more interesting by making things, um, I guess, procedural and planning situations, not writing stories for my friends to act out. And I was looking at those for a long time. I'd actually play very rarely, to be honest with you, because 2020 was COVID. And before yes. that, I was moved away for like college with my friends in my hometown. So I played like only a couple games per year, to be honest. But I started my blog, I want to say like March 2020, like started COVID because I was like, I'm kind of bored. I want to start doing this kind of thing too. But I don't think it was until like 2021 that I started posting, I guess, like the weird stuff people kind of talk about. Well, there was definitely a few that caught my attention. Uh, we started talking about like economics and stuff and not in the way that I'm used to seeing it talked about with D&D. <laughs> Could you talk to some of that perhaps? Yeah. So I'm sort of like a math, absolutely math major. I'm a computer science major, but a lot of that is like theoretical and abstract math. And so mm-hmm. I'm really into Marx both politically, but also, um, for fun. It's like a yeah. math problem for me. <laughs> and so I would get bored and I'd be like, so DD has this weird feudal or it pretends to be feudal because it's like pseudo fantasy medieval, but it has a lot of presuppositions that I think are very um early capitalist. Like you have like yes. money accumulation, you have everything spent in gold coins, whatever. And all of that I think presupposes a sort of like early or even like sort of like modern capitalist economy where you're actually mass producing things. You're actually um, talking about land ownership as um, not like a fetal or like a fiefdom kind of thing, but actually like you own land, you extract rent in terms of money and stuff like that. And so those early posts for me trying to like explore, okay, so D&D is obviously made up, but how can we sort of systematize it to make it usable for play in a way that sort of um, is true to its ideas of what its world looks like, while also, I think, exploring parts of it that we can take for granted. Yeah, I, I think one thing when I look at the game, and I like the gold for XP thing because it's really easy. Right. I think it's easy because 
it mirrors the current form of capitalism that we exist in. So people are just familiar with that because that's how they're functioning in society on a day-to-day basis, which you disagree. (laughs) (laughs) So I agree, but I think there's some some caveats to it. Yeah, I think one. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go on. Yeah, this year. I'm curious. So I think like one point reference is what Guy Gax says. And I want to say it's the Dungeon Masters Guide. Mm -hmm. He says that player characters are likely to be the younger children of nobility where they don't have any inheritance. But I think in my view, they don't want to become like peasants or like workers Mm -hmm. either. And so they're kind of avoiding what Marx calls proletarianization. I yes. pronounced that right, where they don't want to become workers, have to sell their time to make a living. And so instead, they're trying to accumulate wealth in these weird fictional places we call it dungeons. <laughs> so they can like accumulate enough to actually own land to make money that makes more money. I'm not going to lie. If I had the option to take up a sword and go dungeon delving and try to get enough money that I don't got to deal with working no more, I'm going to do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it speaks to also the kind of like, I do think that individualist versus collectivist thing is kind of BS, but to me, it speaks to kind of like, I don't want to reorganize society. I just kind of want to get what I need for myself while still participating in the same kind of thing. Yes. And so I think the drive to like find money in dungeons without, I don't know, people being like, we don't want to do this anymore. That to me speaks to, again, a sort of like, I want to own capital kind of mindset that I think is very characteristic of, I don't know, American, Western, whatever culture. So I've got a question then. When it comes to gameplay, what kind of alternatives will we have to find gold and get rich type thing? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of thing which, again, I find... Study capital is not just useful for political stuff, but I also think it's kind of fun. Yeah. And I know some people from like Southeast Asia talk about this, where it's like our enjoyment is very predicated on like the social forms we already sort of live through, whether that's colonialism, it's capitalism, whatever. And so for me, I think an essential part of looking at DND and goal for XP is not just this is an embodiment of like um, capitalist drive for example. But I think it's also kind of a metaphorization of desire in general. I've talked about this with my sort of like Lacan on D&D post, where I say that um, the way D&D works is that you're moving goalposts constantly. Like it's not just about like collecting this many gold and you win. It's about you collect this much gold and then, okay, new goalposts collect like twice that and so on, so on, so on. And so I think that in a way, although gold, of course, plays into like the capitalist fantasy, I think it's also essential to a game where it never ends. You're just constantly finding new things to look after. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about how things are now. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, 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 um, that mirrors reality in some ways. <laughs> you know, you hit that goal. Now you got to get the next one. It just becomes more and more. And what you had isn't enough to get you there <laughs> anymore. Right. So. And, and, and the question is like, how much can you just keep on going for more and more till there isn't any more left? Exactly. I think that's interesting because, um, for like older D&D, part of the idea was that you wouldn't be dungeoning all the time. Cause like the dungeon is supposed to be like the first step where it's like, okay, now you're risking your life to do this. Cause I guess you don't want to do anything else. We have no other option. But once you have enough money to do other things, like the idea is that, okay, now you're going to conquer land. Now you're going to put yourself in like safer situations for yourself, basically. 
where it's like, okay, now you can live in a castle. Now you're doing um, mass war game battles and so on. <laughs> Thinking about that, like you go from the trying to get money, trying to accumulate as much as you can, risking your life for all this. And then suddenly we're like, there is elements like like has been hit on before. There is a huge element of colonialism. We go in there, we kill the inhabitants, we take their gold. It sounds a lot like Columbus or something. There's Absolutely. going on. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty horrible stuff in history. Right. They turned it into a game. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I did, you know, because like, that's how we structured like our way of life, but also like how we sort of idealize certain things. Yes. So I've got a question uh, that's completely off of what we're talking about. I, there's a, there's a, uh, a couple posts here. I'm going to ask if you could possibly expand on what they are, what you're saying, what you are articulating. If we need to, we can pull them up and read through stories. <laughs> <laughs> but the headlines are, are are a little, what's the word I'm looking for? Might be upsetting. Oh, no. <laughs> to solve. The OSR no. should, should die. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the OSR should die. I'm sorry. Am I horrible to bring this up? <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious. What was the what was it we were talking about in that post specifically? Um, I'm going to refer to um, let's say a conversation, quote unquote, that takes place on Discord of Vermont often, mm-hmm. where we have some people who are like the Orsar died in 2018 <laughs> because Google Plus was you know deleted off the yes. internet. Goodbye forever. And then you have. Um, my friend Ram specifically, or Ram from the Save versus Total Party Kill blog. Mm-hmm. Sorry, there's like a lot of words in that. <laughs> where he always says like, it's not dead, you idiots. It's like still here. We never like stop blogging. We just don't talk anymore to each other. And so to me, I wanted to kind of refocus the debate from like, is the OSR dead or alive to, well, what's being said here exactly? So obviously it's not like an objective question. It's a political question, so to speak, where it has like presuppositions about like what the OSR is and what was it mean for it to die. And so I want to offer instead like um, a short history of what the term OSR is applied to, like where it came from, how it's applied to at first, like these people playing AD&D, to people making their retro clones, to people on G+, doing their DIY kind of thing, to people making rule books based off of those new ideas. And so my point was less that the OSR should die as a play style or as a community because those things are obviously still here and they won't go away because I said so. But the OSR as basically a label people use to sort of like posture themselves as like, I'm the true OSR or Mm -hmm. um, the OSR is this specifically. I think those kinds of things are, again, they're presuppositions people use to sort of posture themselves as the true successors of a movement that never really went away. It still exists on Dragon's Foot, just like there's still people on Google Plus who, yes. um, or not Google Plus, people from Google Plus who still blog, they never really left. And so I think, again, it's a political question more than it is an objective one. What I am attracted to, what I think is cool about what happened from the OSR. Now, I didn't, I when a lot of stuff was going on in the, a decade or more ago, I was I, other people were playing third and getting into fourth and getting into OSR. I was still just playing AD and D from old books that I had, mostly because it costs too much to buy a bunch of fifty dollars right. books to restart. It's so expensive. <laughs> I have, I think, just like three books for like games on bookshelf right now because they're so expensive. 
they can be. Well, when I was back then, the beauty of 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 AD and D in the two thousands before, like, and and going into the early twenty, like the early twenty tens, was I was picking up AD and D books for half the cover price at half price books and filling my thing out, and, and I knew oh. someone who was a manager. They get me half out that, so I was picking some of those books up for like. Four bucks a pop. I'm like, ah, it's more affordable. And then suddenly oh there's a boom in it. I'm like, well, I'm glad I grabbed those books when I did. <laughs> They're not half price anymore. Oh my God. I got out of control. But that was a large part of me continuing to play AD&D. And that's what kind of led me to seek out other games that were compatible because I was just not going to make that reinvestment. But I still like to buy game stuff. <laughs> Exactly. Now, now, one of the things I do like about it, and what happened with the what's it called the uh, the oh what's it called the uh, not the OSR you want to say OSR the OGL what happened with yes. the, the open game license is that there this community started popping up that I one of the things I started mentioning or talking about a while back was open gaming this world where like. Gaming and gaming contents created by the community and not necessarily by big companies or for, you know, for the profit of a shareholder. I'm really attracted to that. And things like blogs and independent publishing and a lot of these games. Right. Are perfect for that. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I totally agree with that because I think it's great how I know legally you can copyright like game mechanics or whatever, mm -hmm. but I think the OGL was a big step for at least the company to be like, okay, well, we can't even try to see you guys. So just go crazy with it. Yeah. And I like this, th there's that phrase that people, what's that phrase that people you, you say, a rising tide rate raises all ships or something. Have you heard that one? Yes, for sure. For sure. What, am I saying it wrong? <laughs> no, I think it's um, rising tide, rising tide lifts all the ships. Something like that. Right, I'm like, gonna I'm gonna have to go to Google it. To, rising tide lifts all boats. All boats. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess ships are kind of big, so you want like the small boats too. Yeah. So rising tide lifts all boats, and I think there's an element to that. I think that more like I've complained about a few companies that have refused to put out an open license. Like, hey, it'd probably benefit <laughs> you to do so. Right. I think at least because I think what Wizards discovered was that you don't have to do brand making yourself. You can kind of offload that to other people. And on one hand, like it's kind of, I guess, scummy in a way because <laughs> then you're kind of like basically monetizing other people's stuff. Yeah. And again, like I'm part of like the anti-commercial scene, I guess. So to me, like mm -hmm. I don't have any plans to like commercialize stuff in general, mm -hmm. but I think them using OJ to their advantage, I think it's something that's a little bit exploitative, but also that works for us because now it can be like, okay, if you want to prosecute us, then we should take what we can from it. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, there are really good options. I know there are some options to put stuff out. Like, I think the D&Ds, the what's that called? Beyond? Yes. I, they take a large chunk of stuff that you publish there from Wizards, whereas opposed to, like, putting it out yourself through other means, like Itch and stuff, you're able to retain a little more from what I understand, but I've not put something out on either one. I'm this all hearsay for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> on itch, there's like a variable um, amount you give to the company that runs the website. And so I think the default is like 10%. It could be even down to zero or something. 
And again, I've only used it for like distributing stuff. I don't really sell stuff on there anymore, but people are like, um, oh, we love it because they're not like greedy capitalists like DMs Guild are. <laughs> I think it's I I think it's impossible to escape the capitalists. Oh no. <laughs> that's 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 one thing. Like as someone who and I'm not trying to turn this into a completely political podcast, but it's part of the subject. These things come up and right. it's part of the industry. And and a lot of things you hear is like, well, if you're against capitalism, you shouldn't be participating. Like, well, you can't not participate in capitalism to some extent in a capitalist society. That's part of the point about being against it. Say, like, hey, the way that society is structured is a capitalist society. It kind of dominates everything. Exactly. And that's something that I've kind of um, had to like argue before was because people think of them selling them. Some like games on it, for example, it's being like anti-capitalist because they're not a monopoly. They're like independent publisher. They're like, just like one person doing it. Mm -hmm. But I, nevertheless, like it's still a commercial relationship to the thing you're producing. Yeah. And I'm not trying to argue that's like a bad thing or like an immoral thing as much as it is like, that's obviously going to inform like how you interact with it and how you structure your own activity because if you want to succeed you have to compete and basically min max your enjoyment versus your productivity versus your time spent on it and so on and so on and so i can't speak to like what a good solution is because like you know i don't think there really is a solution mm -hmm. but i do want to point out that capitalism is not just like big companies it's also like small businesses and so on which participate in circuits of capital to further their existence yes so <laughs> back to D and D. I can, I find this the, that kind of stuff interesting. I think that a lot of times when you talk about it, people misunderstand what people who are in opposition to capitalism are opposing. Um, it's not the I'm not like I as someone who's an opposed to that stuff. I'm not against like creating things and putting it out there in the world, making things and production and stuff like that. I just think that instead of it being a uh, a system that benefits a very select few, that those who are creating should have a little bit like I like many people create and make things during the day of their day job and get very little for it. Well, the lion's share goes to somebody who sits in an air conditioned office. And I'm of the mindset that those who are doing all the hard work should probably get a little more equal share than they're getting instead of someone at the top sucking it all up. That's pretty much what I was. That's pretty much my stance. <laughs> right. And so I guess where I differ is that I agree that while we're stuck in this society to be joker for a second, yeah. Um, it's nice to at least distribute some like profits and so on. So people who are actually working will see some what they're producing as far as like value goes. Yeah. But that being said, just because you're receiving more of the profit you generate does not mean that you are free from capitalist relations as far as like production and distribution goes. Yes. Because um, when you're producing something for sale, you're still subject to basically market forces as far as like dictating what time should we be spending, like making this thing, um, how much can you sell it for? How are you going to find a market for it? Those questions don't go away when you make a democratic workplace, for example. Yes. There's still impersonal forces that rule over your daily activity. And so I guess politically, my long shot thing is it'd be nice to have society where we're not organized around the profit drive anymore. We're organized around production for things we use not for exchange and production to meet the needs of society <laughs> as opposed exactly. to the, you know, that's 
It makes sense to me. Seems like the better way to approach it. But anyhow, let's go back to D&D economies. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. No, you're good. That's <laughs> fine. I enjoy this. One thing that I think we've talked about here in the past, I'm, I'm going to pick your brain and see how much much you, you might be able to lend to this discussion is I've got a few books on feudalism and the economics and the reality of how that works. Like we're sitting here talking about how capitalism is now. It's not always been capitalism exactly. as the driving force in society, but yet it's in our game. And I don't think our games, most games I've seen remotely come close to mirroring the reality of things like feudalism as they existed. Absolutely. So I'm curious what you can add to that. <laughs> <laughs> so something I think is kind of interesting about the ND is the extent to which I think it mirrors the development of like an early capitalism in the new world. Back up before, like it's very much a colonialist game where you're trying to accumulate wealth and you want to get your own land and steal it from the native orcs and so on. Yes. Like that's already kind of nasty. But I think I think something essential to that um, analysis is that feudalism wasn't in isolation either. Like we can't really think of things as discrete modes of production per se, because even while you had these like kings and lords extracting rent in the form of like wheat, for example, you still have these merchants who are selling goods from place to place to kind of facilitate exchange between five dumps, however they're pronounced. And so I think that. Of course, if you want to make a feudal society in D&D, it looked very different from what actually exists in D&D. Like you have to deal with a lot more, like I think non-monetary economy has to deal with, serves has to deal with more direct exertion of authority over people, which I think isn't really mirrored in D&D where you have basically more indirect market forces kind of thing going on. Yeah, and the whole just like being able to have that independent wealth and stuff like that doesn't seem to really... You know, there was not upward mobility. <laughs> was, no, exactly. That wasn't an option. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to say about 2022 the United States at this point, but hey. <laughs> exactly. And so I think another thing to look at that is how feudalism, um, how do I say this? When it's associated with like the dark ages, I think it's not an unfair assessment because at least in Europe, it comes after the fall of the Roman Empire, you know? Yes. And so with the Romans and like the Greeks and so on, you had a lot more free flow of commerce, which resembles to some extent a more modern capitalist economy than it came after it. Yes. It probably would have been, there was things from what I understand, this isn't one I've specifically really nitpicked into, so I don't want to out, out, over, you know, speak out of line, but from what I've read and seen, the Roman Empire did have a lot more commerce that would mirror what would come in capitalism even like their their legal structures are kind of when it comes to the united states something that we've kind of mirror that maybe some of that roman empire stuff might be easier to pull off than some of that feudal dark age oh stuff. absolutely <laughs> and so this is me being very reductionist but once a roman empire falls and you have like these um, warlords sort of take over Europe. They have a lot more direct authority over their lands. And so obviously it changes from like a more commercial state of things to sort of more direct feudal. Um, you live on this land, you don't go anywhere else and you give me your grains 
And so on one hand, like that doesn't really exist in D&D, but it's also something I think is a very temporary stay as far as like the human condition is concerned. Obviously, you still have merchants who were coming back into power over time and they started getting angry that like, hey, why are we being restricted by these like feudal lords? Aren't we going to a more like liberal state of things? Mm-hmm. And so I just want to try to say is that it's hard to look at feudalism as like a thing that's longstanding or something that's sort of like very set in stone. Whereas I think you're, it's always like sort of like a failure state between like a collapsed capitalist economy and one that's like coming back from the ashes of that that makes sense yeah now i know that great are you familiar with david graber i, I think yes that, i know that graber pointed out in one of his books death i think it was death the first five thousand years and it's been about a decade or so since i've read that <laughs> yeah so we can now actually it's really interesting i haven't read it i mean i need to go back and visit it <laughs> i've got it on my shelf but actually I ne- didn't. I've never read the copy I have. I bought the copy after I, re- I read it on my Nook. Oh, <laughs> originally, <laughs> I've had that copy for since about 2012, 2013. So it's been a minute since I've read it. I want to say, I don't want to hear they even come out. It's around that time. It was pretty new. Anyways, I'm ready. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that Graber pointed out is the concept of debt, like this idea that like money is represented. It's began as a representation of like labor and value as an exchange is kind of not historically accurate that debt predates all that you're oh that you owe yourself to uh, a church or a land a feudal lord or something that the debt comes before monetary systems and society and that barter is not like that comes after you run into this i owe whoever it is in power as opposed exactly. to our traditional economic understanding that we've always been taught that barter comes first, then comes money. That's not reality <laughs> in human history. That's a myth that economists have made up to explain what we're doing. Exactly. <laughs> so what I might bring that up because what does that society look like pre that debt and power? If you're going back to like playing in like a pre Roman pre-feudal and you go back and playing a, a role-playing game like Primal Quest or something like that is coming out now. Where's, exactly. What does the world look like like that where, <laughs> you know, everybody's like, oh, we're going to trade seashells, but that wasn't happening. Exactly. <laughs> it's really interesting because like, again, economists take like the myth of barter so for granted, you know, because it's so ingrained like how they view the development of things. I actually like that for that because one of the things that like people after Marx have done is they look at his analysis of like the money form and they confuse that with Adam Smith's barter, but that like first start trading shells, now we're trading gold because we have, it's like fancier, whatever. Whereas I think that gets to a very interesting um, analysis where it's like, no, money's always been a measure of basically value, not value for barter, but value of like, what do you owe to other people? And how do you value what you owe to other people as far as like exchange goes or like delayed exchange almost? Yeah. And being able to create a, a society, I think that what it is, in my opinion or my perspective, is when we're playing these games, it's always just easier to go with what's most familiar to us and be able to exactly. envision something outside of it. That just makes the game a little more complicated. Right. <laughs> Uh, I'll give him two gold for that as opposed to what's the option. <laughs> right. And I like what I pointed out is that when we go to kind of like 
barter and our pre-capitalist ideas of what a company should look like, it's not because it actually existed, but because we're trying to like reach for something that resembles our own system of exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We assume like, oh, there's no money, but we can trade like this or that instead. But um, I think as far as implementing that in like a campaign where you're playing like cavemen or um, like kind of gatherers. Or even playing the people who get to live in that better society post-capitalism. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It becomes a lot more difficult, I think, both as far as like abstracting like game mechanics goes, but also like narrating things. I think it's a lot more difficult to incorporate that into a campaign because the nice thing about capitalism (laughs) is that it abstracts your interactions with other people. And so you don't have to worry about like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Like you said, just like, here's some gold coins because I know you can use them for something else. And it's probably easier just to write down a few numbers and subtract on a piece of paper to figure it out. (laughs) For us, the way we're trained to think, the way we've been raised. (laughs) Exactly. And so I do think it'd be interesting to play in a campaign where it's a lot more like um, a lot more personal. You have like gift economy or you have like feudal economy, people like rule over you, but also makes it a lot more difficult because there's a lot more restraint in what you can do and expectations from other people. And I think something to, I think to really explore and like, like historical. Yeah. What does it look like? And especially like creating procedures for doing that in a game. Exactly. Where one of them, we have entire textbooks that create those procedures that we can mimic. (laughs) That is the dominant thing is taught versus the other ones like, "Ah, how do we create? They didn't write those textbooks six, seven thousand years ago. There's no textbooks on how things functioned. Exactly. (laughs) Well, we're coming up close on time. Could you tell the listeners where they can find you online and follow you? Yes. So my blog is at chiquitafajita.blogspot.com. And my Twitter is Traverse Fantasy. No underscores, no anything. I think that's it. I don't think I have any other like fancy weird places. There's my itch, but you can find that at those two places. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. No doubt, no doubt. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, give us a positive review wherever you're listening. You can find us on Facebook. Just search Wobblies and Wizards. Wobbliesandwizards.com is our blog. I'm on Twitter at LogarHaleCrom. We can really use support on Patreon, patreon.com backslash wobblies and wizards. And as always, keep those dice rolling.